I feel like why not have something that's more niche and hard to find? Like, why does it mean just because I am a BIPOC brand, a Bangladeshi owned brand, whatever you want to name it, why does that mean I also have to be there? You know, I just feel like there must be space for us to also experience what it feels like to build one of these like YSL type brands or what, you know, where it starts with like a visionary. Hey, this is Evercenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm your host, Curtis Rouse III. On Thursday, June 22nd, we hosted a panel on BIPOC entrepreneurship. The event brought together disruptors across multiple industries and focused on why success and scale are mutually exclusive, as well as the importance of focusing on quality during periods of growth. The event was sponsored by our friends at UBS. Today, we're sharing some of the key moments from that conversation with you. The panel was moderated by Epicenter NYC's S. Mitra Kalita and featured Carla Zanoni, the head of audience marketing and analytics at TED, Thanais, an author, perfumer, and the founder of Thanais Beauty and Perfumes, and Brandon Adams, the owner of Lloyd's Carrot Cake. I thought it might be helpful to actually start with Brandon. What I will always remember when I interviewed Brandon for time, he said to me, Sometimes I wish people talked about my carrot cake, not just that I'm a Black-owned business. And that has stuck with me because as an institution, and UBS does the same thing, we really try to support BIPOC businesses. And yet, Brandon's words have shaped the way that we do that. Brandon, if you could take um, us to that moment of what you said to me and what you meant. 2020 was a crazy year. Obviously, you know, so much just up and down, the social justice movement, um, there was so, so much support in black business, um, and 2020 honestly ended on a crazy tragic note for us because we, we lost my mother. You know, she was a force of this business. Um, you know, so my, my dad started, just to take a step back, my dad started this business with a recipe that he got from my paternal great-grandmother, his grandmother from the islands. He was from St. Thomas, he eventually was my mother, and she, continues to support his, his dreams and uh, they built a makeshift kitchen out of my mom's parents basement. Um, he starts selling cakes out of his car um, and starts he starts with the wholesale attacks, um, restaurants, coffee shops and um, it, it grows to a point where he has to get a brick and mortar. Uh, they go to Riverdale in 1986 with their first brick and mortar space um, and you know they do so much baking that, you know, people are in the neighborhood are like, what is this smell? What is this smell? <laughs> and, you know, almost 40 years later, we have a retail component that's out, surpassed our, our wholesale component. So to circle back to what, yeah, our conversation, um, I may have misspoke, but I probably said, I hope they speak about our carrot cake, it's definitely not mine. Um, but I just hope they speak about our carrot cake and not just the fact that we're a black owned business. Um, because, you know, the, um, the energy and the passion that comes with the people that are so excited and passionate about coming to our store, waiting for a cake, sharing it with people, you know, I think that is, is critical. To that point, seeing us for our, our product and not the fact that we're just a Black-owned business. Both my mother and father did a really great job at teaching us that you know, we have to make sure that the quality of everything that we offer is top tier. 
and that should speak for what we do. And I think that it comes across every time, and we hope it comes across every time somebody takes a bite of our cake. And that's what we want to speak for it. So um, as testament to that, I've had Lloyd's Carrot Cake at three parties that I've thrown, both personally and professionally, and it's always gone. We're going to pivot. So Carly and I have known each other for about uh, 15, 15 years or so. What I marvel at with Ted has been its ability to create community, even as Ted, the talks have become a household name and have these sub-brands. And so I had the opportunity to moderate a panel that Carla and I were on in Italy. She talked about the time of engagement as Ted has grown on their videos, actually growing, meaning the, the brand became more ubiquitous, but engagement benefited. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because usually the more people who turn to you, the less time they spend with you. And so I just thought that was something given your digital background in terms of you know, growth, how you've managed that. I, I think that point is is the most important point. I know we'll talk a little bit more about this, but finding the right balance between reach, scale, engagement, quantitative reach, and, and qualitative metrics is incredibly important. And I will say from a personal standpoint, I, I'm an immigrant, I grew up in an immigrant family, like connecting with community and having that kind of quality engagement of how I interacted with different families and how we supported one another, I think that that's an incredibly uh, foundational part of the way that I think about my work. The past decade or so, probably more, has been all about scale, 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 and, and really finding the biggest amount of people to consume your content, to share your content, etc. And Working at TED has been really interesting because it, it is a mission-based organization, and the intention of having a, an elite, very, um, you know, about 2,000 people attend the TED conference in Vancouver each year, and that is a wonderful community that exists. We've done a huge amount of work to make sure that the people who attend the conference, the newcomers, are really brought in from a, a much more diverse set of communities than its start. And all of the, much of the content comes out of that conference. But then this magic happens where we edit these talks and we put them on the internet and then social media. TED has something like 100 million followers across different social media plus YouTube platforms right now. That number is insane. But the game of reach can be a really cheap game. So we can say 100 million followers across all of these channels, but we know actually the, the percentage of people who take a next step, who engage with the content, who follow you, who have some sort of more loyal, habit-building kind of relationship with you can be a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that. And so the piece that I found most inspiring was when I started looking at time spent and the quality of someone engaging with that content. I love that. I, I think it segues us to the Naids. Many of you know Nathan Mokul is my co-founder of Epicenter, and he curates a section um, in every Tuesday's newsletter that features an artist. And so one week he said, there's this artist we should profile who uses 
um, scent and olfactory um, senses in their work. And I said, well, that's really unique. Can I do an interview with them? And he was like, well, yeah, you're my boss. You could kind of do whatever you want. And I interviewed you, I don't know if you remember, as an artist. And then um, a few months go by, and at Christmas, um, Nathan is very excited to present me and our two daughters with all these makeup products. And that's the first time I thought of you as a business person. So it's I, So for me... I kind of think of you as an artist, and then when I saw the packaging at Christmas, I said, oh, these products are beautiful. So I'm thrilled to have your voice among us because I think you're straddling uh, multiple roles here. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition? Uh, so I feel like I'm doing both constantly, and I work 24-7, so I don't feel like there's, like... I think the entrepreneurs... Yeah, and so I'm, like, on my back, like, talking to my supplier in Hong Kong or whatever. So I'm always being an entrepreneur, but I think artists can really do anything, which is not something that people think about when they think of an artist, but artists are their, first and foremost, their own representative. So I'm a writer, and for me... As an entrepreneur, I'm starting with a story and then I have to make it into a tangible creation. So I have to learn how these materials need to be sourced. What does the supply chain look like? How to communicate with people in other countries? Like all these things that I'm constantly doing are parallel to my artistic process when I'm writing a book. I have two books. So to me, they're not like separate. But I think why I'm attracted to this event as a disruptor is I think disruption is really uncomfortable and I don't think it's like an easy process within the beauty industry or the literary industry to say I'm going to disrupt this industry with new aesthetics and new ideas. So for me a lot of the things that I've been noticing in tech and in new kind of startups they're exploring spaces that are parallel to the sense I'm creating the psychedelic space, the space of how do we have faces that are like BIPOC, you know, and not ever compromising on that. Like all of my models are usually queer femme people of color. Like that is one of my values. The art that I'm using to adorn them is art that's made by person that represents the groups that I want to market to. And the way that we're spreading the word is like, doing a wild posting campaign, we pasting all across New York City and in Los Angeles with these bodies that have traditionally been excluded from the beauty industry. So it's disrupting this idea of what it looks like to be beautiful. So I'm trying to reach the world by showing that our minds, beauties, bodies are luxurious, are things to be inspiring to people and yeah. constantly thinking about this. And I, I think people who hold that as a business principle, like I could see people nodding in the room because how many times as a company have we turned to, I want to say we want to buy puck business, but it takes us in a completely different direction and we actually end up discovering a new business principle along the way. I mean, it's really, it's much more of a journey. Can I stay with you and ask you, um, like, how do you define the mainstream then? And I'll ask each of you that question, but do you define the mainstream? Is your goal to redefine the mainstream? Do you care about being in Sephora or just to name one brand? I mean, like, I think Sephora is the right one to name for mainstream, but like I've done like Urban Outfitters and Nordstrom and Walmart and I feel like 
why not have something that's more niche and hard to find? Like, why does it mean just because I am a BIPOC brand, a Bangladeshi on brand, whatever you want to name it, why does that mean I also have to be there? You know, I just feel like there must be space for us to also experience what it feels like to build one of these like YSL type brands or what, you know, where it starts with like a visionary. So if you're doing all kinds of art making, you really can't do that in a place like Sephora. But that money that you get from Sephora, <laughs> the cost is that you can't be as creative. But when you're creative and you're selling one piece, one piece of jewelry for $5,000, how many tubes of cheap lipstick is that? You know? So for me, I'm just sort of like, I'm an artist. I can create something that's worth so much value that I don't need to mass produce something that's going to get me like, Ten dollars for everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just don't. That's just not me. You like, and Brandon did that. not plan this, but Brandon, I don't know if you remember when we had a conversation about growth, and I was asking you how that was going. And I, if I recall, you said something similar. Like we really control how many cakes we're making because we don't want to sacrifice the quality. So the idea of being mainstream is very appealing, and we feel like we're artists too. You know, what we do is we make an artisan product, and it's a work of art. You know, every time one of our bakers bakes a cake, one of, every time one of our frosters, you know, frosts a cake, it, it, it's an artisan product, you know, and we would love to be able to be in every Whole Foods, you know, but we don't want to uh, sacrifice the quality of our product. Um, and it is, it's a tricky dance because, you know, we definitely want to grow and like we said, we want everybody to be able to taste it. Once you can taste it, that, that's the key. I, I circle back to an uh, interview that my dad would, did with uh, NBC4 back in like, this guy in like late 80s, early 90s. And they would always press him, hey, what's the secret? What's the secret? And his line was always, well, Colonel Sanders isn't telling you his secret, so until <laughs> so he starts giving up his souls or his spices, I'll keep it quiet. <laughs> but, you know, I think to that point, you know, he was thinking on that scale, like, you know, we can be a, a KFC type of behemoth. This is that good of a product. But also, like, you just don't want to, to sacrifice, you know, the integrity of the product. And that's, that's the tricky part. Carla, how do you define the mainstream? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. On, on the one hand, for TED, you have this huge scale that I was mentioning, and yet there is a lot of attention that's paid to make sure that the integrity of the talks that are being given meet a certain standard. A lot of people don't understand that when you're asked to give a TED talk, your, your ideas are being curated, and typically speakers work six to nine months working on a talk, working with a... a you know, a coach, um, with a curator, et cetera, to really bring that idea to life. On the flip side, we have something called TEDx, which is really a franchise product, right? And the understanding there was we didn't want to gatekeep, right? So the beauty of curation is that you're really shaping those ideas, that you're thinking through what is the important discussion that we should be part of in the zeitgeist. Well, that's great. But if you're only doing that from the top and you're not empowering communities to speak with authority about what they know, um, then you're only giving one slice of the story. And, and at the scale that, you know, that TED operates on, that's a really difficult game. Um, 
for the most part, it's been a huge success. So on the one hand, I think it's really important to keep those, is it 12 secret spices? I'm forgetting how many spices. No, I know, I know. I can't On the one hand, I think it's important to know your value and your worth and protect that, but then also figure out where are the spaces where you can open a bit more and, and really amplify and, and leverage that. At the end of the conversation, Brandon announced that 251st Street and Manhattan College Parkway will be renamed Betty and Lloyd's Adam Way after his parents who started Lloyd's Carrot Cake. Our event attendees had a chance to taste the infamous dessert, and you can too by visiting them in Riverdale or East Harlem. Thank you so much for sharing. It's something that we've been working on very hard for the last couple of years. Um, and just so many people have been effortlessly campaigning for us. I mean, between the councilmen, the uh, Bronxborough president, so many uh, politicians, so many community members. Um, so we're really excited about it. Um, I've actually set up a foundation in my parents' name. Um, so we're going to be doing some fundraising to give us some scholarship for kids um, that, um, you know, embody the spirit of my parents. So if they show promise in either entrepreneurship or sport. Um, so this is just a step. And it's just, we're really excited that, you know, their legacy will be cemented right in front of our shops. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yes, yeah. To learn more about Lloyd's Carrot Cakes, Danae's Beauty and Perfumes, Ted, and all of our guest speakers, check the links in our show notes. And to learn about upcoming events like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Caravica. You can find more of their music on their website linked in our podcast description.